today we're going to be telling a story of abuse towards her when i was young i just had a lot of hatred violence banging on the door threatening her mm. dragging her out of the house neglect i wasn't really potty trained until like first grade and how you process all of those things from your childhood as an adult you know that she was basically abused by my dad and that's what caused the illness actually um, had trauma and being repeatedly abused throughout my childhood. Today on My Mom Made Me, John's story. Every year, hundreds of thousands of children are taken away from dangerous family situations. Families where abuse, violence, emotional neglect are all too familiar for the children involved. And John's story is unfortunately no different from a lot of those. It was becoming this really kind of untenable situation. And so my question when I was looking back on this was um, why, you know, why someone who loved, I know, loved me very much, um, really became a different person and became a, a bad mom. What sets John apart is that rather than the intervention of the state, of the police, of the local government. It was actually his aunt, his mum's cousin, that stepped in, took charge, and removed John from what was a very serious and very dangerous situation. The violence that John's biological father, Jimmy, meted out on his mum, Karen, was so severe that it ultimately at least John believes, caused her to develop a life-threatening and ultimately fatal illness. I first met John on Instagram, bizarrely enough. He messaged me because he'd listened to a couple of the episodes of the podcast. John lives in Berlin. He is an academic. He writes about catastrophe history, which are the many periods, unfortunately, in human history where we've had catastrophes, whether that be environmental uh, or human catastrophes like the Holocaust. He's lived in Berlin nearly all of his 20s, and for him, it feels like home. You know, for, for, view, for listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with the Berlin aesthetic um, and the vibe of the city. Can you give us a sort of a brief kind of headline description of your experience of it? Yeah, I mean, I've been coming here on and off for eight years. So this is kind of my second home. I'm American, if you couldn't tell, I'm from Chicago. Um, but Berlin is, I would really say, like the youngest, uh, most creative, very queer city in the world. It's still very affordable. Um, and yeah, my life is, you know, going to the opera every week and also world famous clubs and every kind of culture and academic experience you could imagine. So it's been a good place to spend my twenties. Have you gotten into Berkheim yet? I have, I have. <laughs> I would expect I nothing there. I would expect it's, nothing um, The locals call it church. You go, uh, the local thing to do is you go like 9 a.m. on Sunday. On the Sunday, wow. <laughs> Well, that's um, that's a good bit of insight. John's time in Berlin during the pandemic gave him the mental 
space for reflection and introspection. And for John, that was time he used to reflect on his own childhood, on the mother that is now no longer around and the mother he still has. It's an exercise that he's now turned into a book, which at the heart of it asks a very tough question for John and I think for a lot of people around the world, which is how did a mum that he knew, he was certain loved her, become, in John's own words, a bad mum? So, um, yeah, this has been my life story and what I ended up writing about uh, during the pandemic when I kind of just had time on my hands, you know, and like the rest of the world stopped and I got to kind of introspect and look back on family documents and stuff. Um, So I have two moms. They were born on the same day in 1954. And they're not a lesbian couple. They're uh, cousins. And basically, when my uh, biological mom decided to have me, um, she was a single mom, uh, 39 in central Wisconsin, who basically had everything kind of set in her life and everything that she wanted. um, But she knew she wanted to have kids at some point. So she called up her cousin. Um, My birth mom is Karen. My adopted mom is Kathy. Karen calls Kathy and... uh, you know, says, uh, I need someone to take care of my kid if anything is ever going to happen to me. And of course, this is this very far-fetched scenario, like they're not expecting anything to happen. Um, But Kathy, of course, says yes. At that point, she has four kids of her own, uh, lives outside Chicago. And um, basically, little did they know, within uh, five years, when I was four or five, my birth mom developed ALS and started to deteriorate to the point that um, the year that I was in kindergarten, she couldn't really take care of me anymore. And it was a situation, you know, where I was kind of out of control, um, kind of violent, uh, misbehaving, running away, and also taking care of her, cooking for us, doing the laundry, dressing her, um, kind of becoming her home health aide at age five. And it was becoming this really kind of untenable situation. And so my question when I was looking back on this was um, why, you know, why someone who loved, I know, loved me very much, um, really became a different person and became a a bad mom um, during this kind of health crisis of hers to the point that my aunt actually had to step in and take me away from her, um, like forcibly and do a kind of intervention. And I think they were always on bitter terms, um, even though, you know, objectively, Kathy was doing the right thing for me and is, by all accounts, a very good mom. That's the mom I have a relationship with that I'll talk about. Um, But yeah, it was was kind of a a case of, you know, fear and what disease does to people. Um, And also something we can talk about is, you know, that she was basically abused by my dad. And that's what caused the illness, actually. Um, had trauma and being repeatedly abused throughout my childhood. So she had her own traumas, you know, that were leading her to kind of hold on to me. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, John. It, it, it's, I get choked up listening to it and I, it's very brave of you to kind of share it in such a, a kind of an open way. Do you think your birth mom 
sort of prophesized what eventually happened because of course mm. you sought out your aunt um in the event that something bad happened as you couldn't take care of you how much do you think she knew back when that happened you know i'm always um this is one of the things i do really like about my birth mom i've always i always imagine her as a kind of maybe not maybe feminist is too strong of a word but you know she was in a bad marriage when she was like 18 right out of high school as was kind of common at the time and then was always single uh, for most of her adult life and was very independent, was never going to marry my dad, um, even though they were kind of on and off together for a few years. Um, yeah, so she's she was very uh, independent, and that's the kind of the thing I admire about her. And one of the things that uh, relates to her mothering is that I was really raised by a collection of her close female friends who... I spent a lot of time with and they weren't just babysitters they were like really family members um because she knew that she had to build that network on her own so um i would say the same goes for for my aunt and her you know asking that question she she just she knew that she wasn't going to be able to do it on her own and yet the kind of tragedy of my situation as a young kid was that um as soon as she got sick and got scared that she was going to lose custody of me, then she kind of shut down and cut off communication with other people and didn't ask for help when she actually really needed it. Mm -hmm. And your now, I guess, adoptive mom, Kathy, how have things mm -hmm. been left between her and your birth mom, I guess, today? I think, um, you know, Kathy, I think she made a really strong choice and made the right choices. And I think that kind of shows like that. I mean, she had four kids of her own, um, that she had the right impulses to know that something was really wrong with my situation and that she needed to um, step in. But, you know, for a time, like, for example, when I came out to Kathy when I was 17, um, you know, she kind of panicked at first. And one of the things I later learned was that she felt like she might have disappointed Karen, that it was something about her parenting of me that made me gay. Um, so she still has these kind of, you know, a sense of commitment or not wanting to disappoint, um, you know, the woman whose child she, she raised. And are they on speaking terms? So Karen died when I was like 10 um, and the last several years of her life, she was nonverbal. Huh. So, um, I mean, it was rough. It was really like as a kid, you know, it's really hard to see someone who used to be your only caretaker um, as a single mom just decline. If it's not too personal a question, how aware were you as a four slash five year old of what was happening? around you both in terms of understanding it but also the kind of the emotional awareness of what was happening as well you know i think i was a really troubled kid um i knew that something was wrong but i don't think i really understood why things were happening the way they were um because i just relied completely on my mom and i always had so i sort of trusted her in a basic way but um 
yeah, I was a really destructive kid. I like almost burned our house down with candles. I destroyed a lot of things. I would run away from home. I wasn't really potty trained until like first grade, like basic things that a kid, you know, learns or um, like is socialized around. I kind of missed because there were these two years where I was basically neglected by her. And so my kind of puzzle in sort of building a psychological portrait of her was to figure out, um, you know, why did someone who I know really loved me end up making these choices and sort of using me as a home health aide, you know, cooking and cleaning and pumping the gas and doing the laundry for her and dressing her. Um, And basically what I, the conclusion I came to is that um, she was so terrified uh, about losing me. Like I was really all she had left. And um, she knew that my dad was, uh, they were in a kind of custody battle. um, And even though his situation wasn't great either, she was uh, terrified of losing me either to him or even I think on some level to Kathy. And Mm. so she tried to hold on to me for as long as she could, um, but with pretty disastrous consequences for both of us. And then from the time I was in first grade, I lived basically a very normal suburban childhood. So it has a happy ending, but I wanted to figure out kind of her her choices and the kind of tragedy of it. And how long has it taken you to, I guess, process all of this? Because as you say, this happened to you um, a while back. You were a, a young kid. It's difficult mm-hmm. to understand what's going on around you. What would you say is the difference between the five-year-old John that that was happening to and the John today who's had time to to process all of it? Like, what's the difference in terms of how you feel towards your birth mom? Yeah, I mean, that has been a huge process of working through that. I think towards her when I was young, I just had a lot of hatred. I have this story mm. that I... This is these are things that my my siblings now my who are my cousins and uh, my aunt my adopted mom tell me, but something I used to say all the time when I was this age was I'm not your slave, like I'm not going to be I'm a kid I you know I need to be taken care of I need to play, um, I need to not have these responsibilities and not be just taking care of you. Um, so yeah, that gets to your last question. Like I, I did really know that something was wrong. Um, and it took a long time of really like trying to inhabit her situation and like, think about her choices from her own perspective. And also to think about the way that, you know, abuse and disease, especially together can really sort of cloud someone's judgment and, you know, kind of led to this, um, strategy that didn't really, you know, was ultimately pretty, pretty hurtful for both of us. But now I would say Mm. I have a lot more, maybe compassion is the right word for her Mm. situation. And also just admiration for her as a single mom and as a survivor of abuse, um, I've come to sort of peace with it in a way. I know it's going to be unfair to ask was there a point at which that changed? Because there's never a single point. But was there a, a period or a process that enabled you to have the perspective that you now have? I think the turning point for me was reading, um, for example, there's like a few really striking documents that I found that I use in the memoir. 
So one is a police, she filed police reports every time my dad would like come to our house in the middle of the night, banging on the door, threatening her, dragging her out of the house. Um, You know, he never threatened me, but he was really violent to her and beat her many times. And just finding these documents of, you know, police reports describing like the, the wounds on her body. And uh, one time she took her phone into the police station and um, played the messages for the police and they're transcribed in this police document, you know, these like absolutely despicable, threatening, horrible things, how he was going to come to the, our house in the middle of the night and kill us, these kinds of crazy things. Oh my God. And, um, yeah. And, you know, I've never experienced anything like that as an adult. And I can't even really imagine what it would be to just be so terrified of someone and, um, living alone and not feeling like she had, uh, was really protected or, or that she could protect me. And that was just kind of a game changer for me. I think I held a lot of resentment, um, against her for a long time. And then, you know, it's also sort of related to like the cultural me too turn that these are things that were not talked about for a very long time. And in my family, like, for example, my grandfather, my, my mom's uh, dad, he doesn't have like a, a a grudge against my father. It, and I wonder it, actually if he just doesn't know about any of this uh, or, or didn't know or chose to kind of overlook it. Um, so yeah, I feel like I, uh, once I was an adult and I was kind of of the age where I could think about these things for myself and actually be confronted with like the truth about why this happened, um, I have a lot more understanding. How was it reading those things as an adult? So I'm a historian of catastrophe, actually. So I mostly work on, like, I started working on Holocaust studies. Now I also write about, like, climate catastrophe. But I do sort of trauma studies and, um, you know, psychoanalytically informed kind of history uh, for a living. So (laughs) the kind of conceit of the project is that, you know, this historian of catastrophe returns to the, you know, turns to the documents, the archive of, of their own life. Um, so I wouldn't say I was exactly like desensitized. Like I definitely uh-huh. cried a lot um, in writing this and even also, also happy tears, you know, looking at um, finding things that were very moving to her um, that she wrote that were very, you know, really showed like how much she loved me. Um, and also pictures of of really fun and and like warm memories I have with her. So there wasn't definitely an emotional and very personal connection. Um, but I also like as a historian, I I look at these the documents that are like related to custody, which are like kind of character statements about how horrible my dad was and how good my mom was. Um, and I, then I kind of put on my historian's hat in a way and kind of have to sift through the different biases and different evidence and, you know, that her, her story about why she should have custody was also pretty, pretty partial. And I also think that she, um, she just hated my dad so much that I think she instigated a lot of the tension in, in their relationship as well. When you say she instigated it, um, that sort of paints, I think, a, a certain picture in some people's minds. But what do you mean when you say she was instigating tension? 
Well, I mean, for example, they had these, um, like their lawyers, for example, were, would have these correspondences that they had, he had visitation of me and he was never abusive towards me. So like the irony also is that in my memory from childhood, he was the fun parent. He's the one who bought me my first bike. You know, we would go fishing. Um, it was really fun with him because he treated me like a kid. Um, and with my mom, it wasn't fun. She like really uh-huh. wasn't. She was the responsible parent in a way who was like paying for me and supporting me. But, um, you know, I really loved my dad. And so there's there's evidence of her, for example, in this paper trail where she would conveniently take me out of town when he had a weekend with me uh-huh. in her visitation. And like, it wasn't an accident, you know, like she knew what she was doing. She was trying to throw him off and, you know, provoke him. Understood. And that's, that's going to be such a familiar, um, I think, memory for a lot of people who've had parents who've been estranged or separated and and where there's kind of tension before it's resolved at the beginning. You mentioned that as a kid growing up your dad was the fun one the one that you um, loved and the mom uh, the, the your mom was the one who uh in your own words treat you like a slave or you you thought treat you like a slave knowing what you now know how did your feelings towards your dad or your kind of understanding of your dad change That's, that's, uh, that's an even tougher one in a way. Um, because my dad is still alive, but I haven't spoken to him in about 20 years. So there we just have a complete, uh, kind of breakdown or lack of understanding. Um, he just kind of chose not to be in my life at some point. Um, mm. when he was in and out of prison, when I was maybe like eight or nine is probably the last time that I ever talked with him. He wrote me letters. Um, but he also has actually another, um, child who I got in touch with on Facebook of all places. Mm. Uh, I was in high school and basically we have pretty similar stories about our dad. We have kind of these, you know, bad memories, traumatic incidents with our, with our different moms. Um, and, I kind of made the choice at some point that it's, he's just not someone who who needs to be in my life because I ended up with this, you know, supportive family. So um, I I think there's nothing that really tarnishes those positive memories I have with him. Mm. So in a way, I can still hold on to those. Like there's a lot of fun pictures of us. He took me to the to the Space Museum in the U.S., you know, in Miami or somewhere in Florida when I was really young and that was like the coolest thing I had ever done. You know, like he, he really was uh, a dad in certain ways, but I think when it came to actual responsibility, um, he just ran away. Turning back to your mom and the very um, unique, but also I think for, unfortunately for a lot of people, familiar experience of having to be a carer from a young age mm-hmm. um, to a parent, in this case, your mum. A lot of people will understand it without necessarily being able to relate to it. And, and if you're comfortable, I just wondered if you could help us understand when someone has ALS, 
in your mum's case, what does that actually mean in terms of the day-to-day and I guess over the years where the um the the sort of the situation deteriorates? Yeah, I mean it's a it's kind of a hard disease to diagnose. Um so usually people get it, there's two kinds, but the kind that my mom had is not genetic. So she, you, it's one of the ways that people get it is actually from head trauma. So this is why in, it's kind of associated with pro sports because people with, um, we don't really know the mechanism yet, but somehow it's associated with trauma to the brain. Um, and she was beaten many times unconscious, like she would wake up in different places and, um, was pushed down the stairs and all sorts of, um, you know, experiences that came back to her when she, when I was about four, she started falling and her speech started to give out like her, she sounded drunk on the phone, which was like the first thing that tipped off my aunt, that something might be really wrong. And she thought that she was drunk and that's why she was you know, my aunt Kathy was mad at her. Like, how can she be, you know, watching this five-year-old um, and be drunk? Um, but yeah, my mom didn't really know what was happening to her body for several years. And then as she started going to doctors and getting different diagnoses, uh, she also worked in insurance. So she partly figured it out herself, uh, what the, you know, medical diagnosis could have been. Uh, and that's when they started asking her questions like, have you ever been struck by lightning? Have you ever been, wow. you know, the victim of like extreme head trauma? And uh, her answer was yes. So that's also kind of a cruelty of um, the relationship with my dad is that, you know, he threatened to kill her explicitly so many times. Hmm. And in a way, he ultimately like was was part of that, of her decline. And I think, and she knew that. Uh, she wrote about that, that, you know, in all of these custody documents that um, my dad, Jimmy, was was part, partly responsible for it. So I think that um, definitely, you know, kind of also kind of explains some of her behavior, why she really did not want me around him. That's the end of part one in this two-part series, John's Story. In episode two, we're going to be asking... John some difficult questions about how he's reconciled all of the things which happened to him, his mum, his dad, in his childhood, whether he still has a relationship with his dad, how you deal with difficult and very complex things like forgiveness, and ultimately how you as an adult process all of these very difficult very challenging memories. Now join us on part two next week of John's story. We are on social media. How exciting. You can find us on Instagram at my mum made me pod. You'll get us on Facebook at my mum made me. Twitter at mum made me and even TikTok at My Mum Made Me. Why follow us on socials? Well, you're going to get extra bits from the show. You're going to be able to see our guests on video and, of course, watch their reactions to my mum's lovely and sometimes a little bit weird voice notes. So give us a like and a follow.